This is God's holy word. Please give it your full attention. We will be considering the first two verses this morning. Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff. And someone said, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it for it has been given to the nations and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. This is God's holy inspired word. May God add a blessing to the reading of it. Uh, let's pray. Gracious Father, Son and Holy Spirit, we ask you now as we have prayed that you would bless your word, that you would now bless the preaching of your word. Lord, help us to have minds that understand, ears that hear, eyes that see, hearts that believe, and hands and feet that obey. Let us be encouraged as the saints throughout all of your church age, Lord, have been encouraged when they read these words from this chapter. Be glorified. Lord, I decrease that you may increase. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Ebrium Ferozzi, an Iranian Christian, was charged and convicted for propaganda against the Islamic Republic for launching and directing evangelism and running a Christian website in Iran. While in prison, his mother became sick and she died. He was not allowed to attend her funeral. Ebrium has been released from prison now and now he must live in exile in a remote village near the Pakistani border. In Colombia, it was reported that yet another pastor was targeted and murdered. Pastor Pino Salcido gunned down in his own home in front of his wife and children. He was the fourth church leader killed at that time in less than a year. In Egypt, Christians preparing to celebrate the Lord's Day were shocked to arrive at their place of worship to find that it had been burned down to the ground by radical Muslims. Saints, as I began to read through these stories, there were over 245 pages of stories just like these from all over the world. The seven churches of Asia Minor were well aware of the type of persecution that these churches were facing. You recall the second chapter and the church of Smyrna who were being opposed by the Jews. And they were warned by Christ that some of them would even be put into prison. Recall the church of Pergamum, where one of the brothers, potentially one of the elders, Antipas, was put to death right in front of the church, right before their eyes. Dear saints, with all of these examples of persecutions, with all of these examples of opposition to the church, what hope do we have? that we will not face the same kind of physical opposition. At this point in this country, opposition is and persecution is mostly verbal. Mostly. It's still persecution. It's still opposition, but of a, of a different form, of a different kind. It's still an attempt by the evil one to silence your and my witness. What hope do you have in the midst of this certain opposition? We have a promise from God. And here's our hope. That he is with us in the midst of all opposition and persecution. Our hope, our comfort is this. Not that we won't face op opposition. Not that we won't face persecution. Our comfort is that Christ is with us in the midst of opposition. 
in the midst of persecution. We have a promise that we shall never be left alone. That is really what the 11th chapter, and for that matter, the entire book of Revelation is communicating. That God has promised to us that He will never leave us alone. That He will be with us always, even to the end of the age. Our brother Dustin gave me some great insight a few weeks ago saying, we've been taught that Revelation was, and I'm paraphrasing, we've been taught that Revelation was about the suffering of the church. When in fact, it's it's the opposite. It's about her care and preservation. Wonderful insight, I believe. With God's help, then, it's our task to discover the message that John is symbolically communicating to the church for all ages, for her comfort and for her encouragement. So, this morning, then, with God's help, let us begin. With two, we will have two points. And we will consider, I pray, what God intends to communicate to us, His church, as we endure the last days. Number one, the temple. Number one, the temple. Revelation chapter 11 and verse 1 Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Saints, you remember from last week we considered chapter 10 and the the interlude or the parentheses that was provided for the church. It is a call to pause, to consider, and to worship. And in our pausing, in our considering and to worship, the saints are comforted. In our pausing, in our considering, and in our worship, we are comforted by Christ. We saw the same kind of pause or the same kind of parentheses in the seventh chapter in the vision of the 144,000 around the throne of God. The interlude of chapter 7 encourages the persecuted church who is, listen to this, who is on earth that they are in fact citizens in heaven. That there will come a day when they will join all of the saints in heaven to worship God before the throne and to be in his presence forever. That's what the 7th chapter communicates. But now here in the 11th chapter, interesting, it's, it's a similar interlude. The persecuted church who is on earth is encouraged to know that even while we are on the earth, while demonic forces are raging, that God is with us. In both instances, saints are to look to the fact that they are citizens in heaven even though they are on earth. And even though we are on earth, God is with us. And we are promised that we are heading toward an eternal glory where God will likewise be with us. I believe it's important to make the point that that's the point of this passage. God is with us. God will never leave us nor forsake us. God has promised that He will be with us always. Now, it's a fair question to ask this. Where in the world do we see that in what we just read? Where, where is the, the promise from what we've just read that God is with us? Let's look at this passage together and again see, I think, how God is communicating this comforting truth to us. Then there was given to me, verse 1, a measuring rod like a staff and someone You should circle someone, question mark, said, get up, measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Uh, A measuring rod was simply a tool, tool for measuring. And and John is given one that, that is like a staff. It's not exactly a staff. Again, John is using symbolic language. So he said that's it's like a staff. It's given to John. Who's given John this measuring rod? Presumably the one who has cried out with the loud voice like a lion. The one who is clothed like clothed with a cloud and the one whose face is like the sun. Last week I argued that this was the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is Christ, we believe, who commands John to get up and to measure three things. The temple, the altar, and those who worship in it. Now, a very popular view is that the temple referenced by John is a literal future, and I'll say this uh, just so that we are uh, sure, physical temple that is to be rebuilt right before Christ returns. That's a popular view, that this is in fact speaking of a future physical temple. According to this view, 
The measuring of the temple means that God will also physically protect ethnic Jewish believers who are taking refuge in the inner parts of this temple. But for those who are outside of the temple, they will suffer. And if you happen to be in a city where the temple is, according to this view, it's Jerusalem, then you will be trampled under the foot of armies who will be rushing upon the city of Jerusalem. That's a popular view. Uh, We may say, where in the world does that come from? It's an interpretation of Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48. There Ezekiel sees a grand temple. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. As you know, we believe the Garden of Eden was the first temple. Later on, though, Solomon is commissioned to build a temple. He builds the temple and it is eventually destroyed by the Babylonians when they come in, invade Jerusalem and take the Israelites as their captives. Later, under the king of Persia and led by Nehemiah, the Israelites were allowed to return home to build their temple. It would be the second temple or third if we're counting um, Eden and so on and so forth. All of that aside, that temple would also eventually be destroyed in the Roman Jewish war that Christ predicted in Matthew chapter 24. Now, in this popular view, it's held by premillennialists and dispensationalists. A future temple will be rebuilt and the sacrificial system will also be reinstituted. That is, the offering of bulls, goats, and lambs will be reinstituted. And also, the priesthood will be reinstituted. Plenty of challenges with this view. Now, I say that because many of us have been raised either to assume, believe, or by watching movies, Left Behind and so on and so forth, that these things are so. That there will, in fact, be a third temple rebuilt. That we are waiting for it to to be rebuilt. And when it is rebuilt, we've been taught that the Antichrist will go into the temple, that he will try to uh, stand in the office of the priest, and that he will offer sacrifices. It will be the the abomination of desecration. Right? We, We believe... All of these things because we've been raised to believe them. And even if you don't know them, the things that I'm saying are ringing a bell to you because it's so uh, so much in our culture. Now, let's deal with some of the, the problems of this view. <clears throat> First of all, the plans of God for ethnic Israel and the church are fundamentally and eternally different. That's a problem. That God has a separate plan for ethnic Israel than he does for the church. That's a problem. In this view, Revelation then primarily only addresses plans for ethnic Israel. That means that this book of Revelation, it's, it's not really for you. This popular view believes that chapters 4 and onward are only about Jews. That means it has no message for you. No comfort for you. Dispensationalist Donald Gray Barnhouse insists on the book of Revelation's essential Jewishness and urges that it is entirely concerned with their future, again, from chapter 4 onward. That's, that's one view. That's one problematic problem that we have, right? In this view, this popular view, the literal rebuilding of the temple on Mount Zion is also problematic because... It's a place of two Muslim holy sites. The Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aska or Al-Aqsa Mosque are there on the place where Jews believe the temple should be rebuilt. So why is there not a third temple rebuilt now? It's because the place where they believe it should be built is on a Muslim holy site, which Muslims will not give up, obviously. Many believed that in 1948... When Israel became a national state, and in 1967, when Israel recaptured Jerusalem, that these were signs that Christ was on the verge of returning. Also, political support for Israel began to increase. And people believed that you should now pray and protect Israel at all costs. They believed that America was first and foremost charged with this responsibility of protecting Israel. 
because they believed that it was the holy city of God. We'll get to that more in a moment. People were watching the news, watching for signs of the temple being rebuilt. For the Christian who endorses the rebuilding of the temple, they must know that there is no, no New Testament teaching of the rebuilding of a physical temple in Jerusalem anywhere. Why? Primarily because the reason and function for the temple was the presence of God and the offering of animal sacrifices for the atonement of sin. What's the purpose of the temple? It housed the unique presence of God. The temple is where animal sacrifices were offered by priests for the atonement of sin. Nowhere in the New Testament is there a teaching of a reinstituting or rebuilding of the temple along with those purposes. For a Christian, for a Christian to endorse the rebuilding of the temple along with the reinstituting of animal sacrifices today is to deny the true lamb who has come. To deny the, the one who has fulfilled the sacrificial system. I'm going to say this, and I don't mean to offend anyone. Ministers like John MacArthur, in part one of his sermon on the two witnesses, believes that the sacrificial system will be reinstituted as a means to show ethnic Israel that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin and cannot save them, and this will cause them in a mass conversion to turn to Christ. In this, MacArthur believes that all Israel will be saved. All ethnic Israel Jews will be saved. <clears throat> Problematic to say the least. The death of Christ fulfills what the sacrificial system pointed to. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 10. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Once for all time. The idea of a future Israelite nation being restored by God for its temporal sacrifices, it frankly contradicts Scripture. And again, denies the sufficiency of Christ and His atoning death. Now, I said this earlier in our Sabbath school, could there be a third temple rebuilt? Yes, sure. But it won't be in fulfillment of prophecy. And it will stand as a monument to the unbeliever who rejects the finished work of Christ if it's rebuilt. When John is called to measure the temple, the altar, and those who worship in it, is he referring to a literal, physical, stone, brick, temple, mortar? Is he, is, is he referring to something physical? Or, as per usual in this symbolic book, is John referring to a symbolic temple? I submit to you, dear saints, the latter is what is in view here. The latter meaning that John is not referring to a physical temple, a literal physical temple, like one built by the hands of Solomon, but rather a spiritual temple like the one built by the hands of Christ. Now, how do we know this? That We, we can make assertions like these, comments like these, but we need to be able to back them up. Let's consider the background from which the temple comes. Again, the measuring of this temple is best understood by the temple prophecy of Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48. In Ezekiel's prophecy, now listen to Ezekiel's prophecy. In Ezekiel's prophecy, he foretells of a temple that will, listen to this, surely be established, meaning it won't be moved. Like other temples that were destroyed, it will surely be established. It won't be destroyed. It won't be torn down. It will also be protected because those who are within that temple, they are in the presence of God. Now that's grand. Ezekiel is well aware of the destruction of temples. But Ezekiel is seeing a time when a temple will be built and never be destroyed. He's foreseeing a time when the temple not only will never be destroyed, but it will be protected. The temple will be protected because in the temple is the presence of God. It's interesting because when Ezekiel makes his prophecy, the temple wasn't destroyed. The temple was established. It was standing. 
And Ezekiel is looking forward to a time when there's a different temple. So if there's a temple while Ezekiel is making this prophecy, he's obviously not talking about the temple that already existed. He's talking about a different temple, another temple. The temple, again, that Ezekiel sees, it's grand, it's glorious, and it's larger than the temple that existed in the days of Jesus. In Ezekiel's prophecy, the angel is using a reed to measure. A reed looks like a rod, looks like a staff. But this measuring is meant to be a kind of boundary line. Those of you who um, have ever seen people buy homes, and and even in your own homes, you have fences. Your fences are your boundary lines. Uh, they They are your territory, if you will. Those who are within the boundaries of the temple will be secure against the harm, listen to this, and contamination of unclean and deceptive people. Those who are within the boundaries of the temple. They are protected from unclean and deceptive people. They won't be deceived by the demonic forces that are rushing forward. This this should all ring a bell to you. Nine uh, Chapters 9 and 10, uh, the the demonic forces, they they are unleashed to deceive and to kill. They're not allowed to harm, but they are allowed to to deceive. And, And... they're deceiving the wicked. They are allowed to harm the righteous, but they, they, can't, they can't deceive the righteous. And they also can't deceive the righteous unto death. The righteous won't die in unbelief. Those who have been given the seal of God upon their foreheads, they are the righteous. But from Ezekiel's prophecy, let's move forward. When we move into the New Testament, how does the New Testament view or picture the temple. How? Well, again, Ezekiel prophesies of a future temple that will be established, protected, and those who are within the temple will be protected from the evil one. In the New Testament, the temple is generally, meaning more often than not, it's viewed symbolically. Jesus, at the end of his earthly ministry, begins to point to a time after his death and resurrection, well, there will be no need for a physical temple. Christ is pointing to this. Our Lord first identifies himself as being the true temple. He says, the Jews asked him, oh, what, in John chapter 2, what sign do you show us as your authority to do all of these things? And what does Christ say? He says, destroy this temple. He's standing in front of the temple. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. And the Jews, they, 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 they're astonished at the words of Christ. They say, it's taken years to build this temple and you're going to destroy it and then bring it up in three days. John says that they didn't realize that Christ was speaking about his body. Christ identifies himself as the true temple. Within Christ, the fullness of God, the presence of God, the fullness of God dwells bodily. Christ identifies the resurrection of his body as the true temple. In Matthew 24, when his disciples begin to point out the temple and marvel at the temple buildings, what does Christ say? Do you see all of these things talking about the temple? I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another that will not be torn down. He, he, he kind of brings down the, the, the significance of the temple, of the physical temple. There will be a time when this temple will be destroyed. And it was in AD 70. As God's judgment against Jews who had rejected the sacrifice of Christ and a rebuilding of the temple would again be a rejecting of the blood of Christ. You know well that when Christ rose from the dead, the veil of the Holy of Holies was torn in two, right? Top to bottom. Meaning what? Meaning that there begins to be this shift from the physical temple where the place of God, uh, the presence of God dwelt, to now the presence of God being with the church as they gather for worship. The church is now the unique place where the the holy presence of God is. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 20, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. His presence, His unique presence is there. The special, special presence of God is promised when the church gathers in His name and worships rightly according to the manner in which God has prescribed for us. There's a connection between Christ being the true temple 
And those who are in Christ also being a part of that spiritual temple. We're the body of Christ, aren't we? If Christ is the true temple and we are His body, then we are the temple of Christ. We are the temple of God. 1 Corinthians 12.12, Paul identifies believers as being part of the body of Christ, yes? 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you know that you are the temple of God? You are the temple. And the Spirit of God dwells in you. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy. And that is what you are, Paul says. You are the temple. Paul calls the church to flee from sin. To to refuse to be contaminated by sin. Why? 1 Corinthians 6.19 Or don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you? Whom you have from God. That you are not your own. You are the temple of God. There's this theme that begins to develop in the New Testament from Ezekiel's prophecy. It's grand. It's established. It's protected. It will not be contaminated. 2 Corinthians 6.16 6, We are the temple of the living God. In First Peter, the apostle uses the temple of the past made of stones that house the unique presence of God as an analogy for the true temple, the church of Jesus Christ, who when we assemble, we house the unique presence of God. 1 Peter 2.5 You also as living stones are being built up. You are being built up as a spiritual house. What is a spiritual house but a temple? For the holy priesthood, that's what you are. To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Remember that phrase, spiritual sacrifices that are being offered up. The same phrase, temple of God, used in John's writing in Revelation, is used ten times in the New Testament, apart from Revelation. And nine out of the ten times, it's speaking about a spiritual temple, not a physical temple. And the one time that it is used... Christ says that it will be destroyed because He is a true temple. Temple of God is used 15 times in Revelation. And 14 of the 15 times, it's not talking about an architectural temple, but a spiritual temple. What is this temple that John sees in Revelation chapter 11, verses 18 and 19. The temple is there, the very end of time, and it's a heavenly temple. And John identifies it as this, believers who share in the heavenly temple by being sealed by the Holy Spirit. The temple is the believers. The temple is the church. It's not over-spiritualizing this text. The rule of this book is not to interpret literally unless you must interpret symbolically. The rule of this text is the opposite. You interpret symbolically unless you must interpret literally. So when you're reading Revelation, you must see what does this symbolize? Because it all symbolizes something other than what is communicating. But something that is real and true. In Revelation chapter 1... John received this book by symbols. And so we must interpret it symbolically. The temple is the church. It is in fact what Ezekiel saw and foretold the church. What Ezekiel prophesied, it's not somewhere in the future. This grand temple, this one that's being established, that's being protected, it's not somewhere in the future. It began when Christ rose from the dead. It was then that Christ began to build his church that the gates of hell would not be able to overcome. Now, here we are in this interlude. John is using a prophecy of God, God's establishing and protecting the former temple to communicate God's establishing and protecting the current temple, the church. Now, how can we be sure that God will protect the church spiritually from being contaminated by unclean evil people how can we be sure that we will not be like those stories that we told in the very beginning of this sermon of those who were being opposed and persecuted how do we know that we won't be deceived the answer is because we've been sealed by God We are those who have been given a place within the boundary lines of God's temple. 
John is measuring. And you are within those measurements. God is, is uh, John is, is, is taking the rod and he's, he's making boundary lines. And your soul is within those boundary lines. You will not be lost. You are in the temple of God before you are the temple of God. God's presence will never leave you. It's a drawing and measuring line for those who are inside of God's temple and those who are not. And we have a guarantee that our faith will be upheld. Will we suffer opposition and persecution like those that we told of in the beginning of the sermon? We might. We very well might. But just like their souls are not lost because they are within the temple of God, so too your souls will not be lost because God is with you. And if God is with you, that means you are within His temple and you will not be lost. Our Lord said, the Spirit will be with us and never leave us. And no deviant theological doctrines will deceive us. And no impure lifestyles will be able to entice us or allure us. Because God is with us. Our faith will not be spoiled. Our hope will not be shamed. And our love for Him will not be given over to lower appetites. Now we should ask ourselves an important question. Is this establishment and protection, again, something that we should look forward to in the future? And the answer is no. God promises it to you now. You are established now. You are growing in your faith now. You are, you are turning away from lies and deception now. The command to measure is to be viewed from God's perspective as representing a decree that is already enacted rather than something that we're looking forward to. You are secure. Remember in, in Revelation 7 that the, seven, the four angels are standing at the four corners in Revelation 7, the four angels are standing at the four corners of the earth. They're holding back the four winds. We later learn that these, in Revelation 10, that these four winds are demonic forces. And they come from all over the world to deceive and to destroy. But they're not allowed to hurt, harm those who are sealed by God. That is you. Those who are within the boundaries of God. That was the first interlude. The second interlude, we are given the same idea. Those who are within the parameters of God are the sealed of God and they are secured by God. You will not be spiritually harmed. You will not be spiritually lost if you are in Christ. All those who have been given to Christ shall be saved and you shall not be lost. I, I, I can't hear that for myself enough. You have the presence of Christ with you. No wicked, no evil will be able to take you away from Him. What about the altar? We've heard the altar, haven't we? Why is it measured as well? It is to represent the church. Those who offer up their lives as living sacrifices for the gospel. They are those who, as Paul says, um, are living sacrifices their bodies. Which is our act of worship. You remember in the sixth chapter, the, the, the saints who have been martyred, where are they? They are under the altar of God. And, and they are praying for God to be holy and true. And here Paul, or I'm sorry, John says, measure those in the temple. Measure those who are at the altar. Measure those who are worshiping there. It's the church. We offer our lives daily to Christ. We offer our hearts, our minds, our hands, our feet. In all that we do, we do for the glory of God. We acknowledge that we are not our own. That we have been bought with a price, the blood of Christ. That when suffering comes, we do not repudiate Christ. We do not reject Christ. Rather, we hold fast the faith that Christ has given to us and we offer ourselves back to Him. We follow the faithful witness. Christ was the faithful witness and we follow Him and His example. We too, even if it means prison or death, we too are faithful witnesses for Christ. We live, as it were, on the altar of God, in God's presence, offering ourselves to Him. Those who are measured in God's temple, the church, they offer themselves to Him. And our offering is worship to God. This is encouraging. It's meant to be. If you are in Christ, God is with you. God's presence is with you. When darkness increases, God's presence is with you. Uh, when you are hated for your witness, when you're falsely accused for being intolerant, for being a religious bigot, God's presence is with you. 
when lies of the enemy are being told and taught, they won't influence you. Because God's presence is with you. I need to be reminded of this myself. That Christ has said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. For the persecuted church throughout the church age, God gives a lasting comfort. He's with us. And we shall not, and we shall be established, protected, and kept from the evil one until the day of his return. Now, let's go to our second point. Outside of the court, or outside of the temple. uh, Outside of the court, outside of the temple. Uh, Verse 2. Leave out the court which is outside of the temple, and do not measure it. For it has been given to the nations. And they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. There is one view that states if the temple of God, the altar, and those within are meant to symbolize the church, then those who are left out of that uh, measuring are the reprobate. Those who claim the name of Christ but who are not true witnesses. Those who do not belong to God. So the measuring is, in their view... Those who are measured are saved. Those who are not measured are not saved. Even if they claim the name of Christ, but don't live like they belong to Christ, that they're not saved. That's that's one view. It's interesting, though, that the holy city is trampled upon. We'll talk about the holy city in a moment. How could you be in the holy city, which we'll talk about in a moment, and also be trampled on? There's, there's, there's something that's confusing there. So let's see if we can figure this out. I think a better interpretation is not those who are outside of the measuring are not saved, but rather that which is not measured is our physical bodies. The bodies of the saints. The Holy of Holies represents the invisible dimension of heaven. God's feet from heaven extend to the to uh, the, the the earth, if you will, they extend to the Ark of the Covenant, his his resting place for his feet, if you will. The outer court has always represented the physical place where humans, those made in God's image, dwell, but not necessarily the holy place. Anybody could come into the courts, but not everybody could come into the holy place. Follow me. What does this mean? Based upon, I think, some reputable theologians, I think it means that our physical bodies, living as they do in this world, in the courts, if you will, I'm going to say something right now that's going to be very hard for us, for some of us to swallow. That our physical bodies are not guaranteed protection from any kind of harm that will come That even physical harm that comes that we think that should only come upon the wicked, it will also come upon the righteous. The 10th chapter, we saw the demonic forces are unleashed. They have permission to kill. But they can't harm the the spiritual, the righteous. But does that mean that no Christians will ever be killed? That, That can't be true because how many Christians throughout history, beginning with Christ onward, have lost their lives because of the faith, but have not lost their faith. I think what this is communicating is that we may die. There is no guarantee that you and I will not suffer. It is over and over again guaranteed in Scripture. In this world, you will have tribulation. But fear not, for I have overcome the world. It's a spiritual matter, isn't it? There is no guarantee, saints, that you will not get sick and die. Let me take another step forward. There is no promise from Scripture that you can claim whenever you are sick or whenever you are about to face physical death. 
Here's what you can claim from Scripture. God, help me to be established in my faith that it would not waver in this time of trial. Uh, Let me say that again. There is no Scripture that you can claim, nor even give to anybody when they're sick, and say, based upon this Scripture, healing for you. I challenge even those passages that are sent for healing as meaning a spiritual healing and not a physical one. And at the times of Christ, when Christ was physical healing, physically healing, it was in order to show that his message was from God. It was a sign gift. You and I have no guarantee that we will not be harmed imprisoned or become ill there's no passage that you can give that you can stand on and say based upon this I won't get sick you better hope that you just live healthy that you have good genes that's about as much as you can hope for but the spiritual sickness that we have all been infected with oh there is hope for that there is healing for that It's found in faith in Christ alone. That your sicknesses and your infirmities, your iniquities. Interesting that whenever that's used, especially in the Old Testament, iniquity is often followed by it, which is sin. It can be healed. It can be cleansed by the blood of the great physician, the Lord Jesus Christ. If Christ was crucified, then we should expect nothing less. And if we are spared, it is because God saw it fit for us to survive. We are the courtyard. We are in the courtyard. Our bodies. We don't offer animal sacrifices, but we offer what? Ourselves. Notice John uses the language of Daniel chapter 8 and verse 13 that speaks of adversaries that are trampling down the sanctuary of God. Zechariah 12.3 foretells of nations gathering against the city of Jerusalem. Therefore, John recalls these prophecies and interprets them in light of sufferings of the church and says, yes, you will be persecuted. Let's draw it out. It's interesting that John refers to the city as being holy. Verse 2. In verse 8, it's a great city. It's not only holy, but it's also great. In both Nehemiah and Daniel, the city of Jerusalem is referred to as the holy city. It's important to ask then, is Jerusalem holy? Why was the city of Jerusalem holy? Let's try this. Why was it holy? What was it about the city of Jerusalem that would make it holy? It's still holy today. You should already know the answer to the first question, to the first point. The temple was there in Jerusalem. The temple housed the unique presence of God in the city of Jerusalem. The Holy of Holies was there in the temple located in Jerusalem. Therefore, the city itself, because of the unique presence of God in the Holy of Holies, was a holy city. Is God's unique holy presence only there now in Jerusalem? I'm sure there are churches that gather in God's name, in Christ's name, that that, that offer true worship and that the presence of God is with them there in Jerusalem. But is it the only place? Is that city the only holy city? Is that city the holy city? The veil has been torn in two. The temple has been destroyed. The place that is called the temple now, built by Christ, is His church. So is the city of Jerusalem still holy? The answer is no. Uh, For those of you who are wanting to make a a pilgrimage, if you will, to Jerusalem, by all means, go. See historical sites. But don't expect to see Gabriel there, the angel. Don't expect to see Michael there, the the archangel. Don't expect to find a place that is the Holy of Holies and and experience the unique presence of God there. Uh, You may go down to one of the three sites where they believe Jesus was buried, but you won't find Jesus there. The true Israel has come and he has formed a people united and united them to himself in his body. Therefore, the holy city is the church. 
you are the holy city. When we gather, you have come, Hebrews 10 says, to the holy Jerusalem, to the heavenly city. When we gather for worship, it may seem surprising to you, you are right now in the holy city. It's not somewhere in the east, unless we're East Bakersfield. Uh, it's here and now. Romans 9, 6, for those who, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. That is, those who are the people of God do not only come from Israel, but they come from every tri- nation, tribe, and tongue. When Israel assembles, we, the church, are the holy city. When we, the true Israel, assemble, we, the church, are the holy city. When we gather, you, the unique presence of God is among us. We are the holy city, the new Jerusalem. In fact, in Revelation 21, John sees the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, having the, the glory of God. And John says her brilliance was like very costly stone. And there again was the measuring rod. It ensures that those who are within the city are protected by God because of His presence. What is that city but the church who dwells with God's presence? It's no longer a physical temple. It's a spiritual temple. Because God Almighty and the Lamb are there. We are the new Jerusalem. You may say, I'm waiting to go to the new Jerusalem. I'll see you every Lord's Day. I'll see you next Lord's Day in the New Jerusalem. We are the holy city of God. Revelation 22 gives us more insight into which there we shall see in due time concerning the contents of the city. Namely, that the tree of life is there. And it's available to all of the the citizens of the holy city. I said earlier that a popular view is that we must do whatever we can to protect the land of Israel and pray for its peace. Saints, I have... No political, intelligent insight on that matter politically. Spiritually, pray for the peace of God upon Israel, Africa, Asia, Russia, America. You pray for the peace upon all nations, all tribes, and all peoples. But the holy city is a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the new Jerusalem. Again, the writer to the Hebrews, Paul, I believe, in chapters 11 and 12 and 13, refers to the holy city, which we are all members of, and to which we all are looking forward to worshiping together. Can you imagine then, that that when Ezekiel sees this great and grand temple that is filled with all believers, he's looking forward to the church. Imagine a, a temple. A temple that can fit 144,000, if that was the literal number, of believers. That is a, that's a city. And that's exactly what Ezekiel symbolically looks forward to. The city of the living God, the new Jerusalem, the church. John addresses this pressing matter for the seven churches of Asia Minor. And it's so that they would all be encouraged as they are persecuted. The wicked nations, they will tread under the foot of the holy city. They will, the wicked nations will tread under us. We will be persecuted for how long? 42 months. Well, that's not, that's not too bad. 42 months. We can, we can get through that, right? Or is this, as usual, a symbolic number? 42 months is, is, is three and a half years. 1,260 days is three and a half years. The demonic forces will be unleashed to deceive, to test our faith for a period of time that is meant to be symbolic, three and a half years. Not literal. We will suffer in diverse ways, be they physical, emotional, personal. How long? 42 months. Revelation 12, 1 through 6 gives us insight into what this period of time is. And I'll read it to you real quick. Revelation 12, 6. Then the woman, that's the church, fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God. She's protected spiritually in the wilderness, the world, so that there would be, so that she would be nourished. 1,260 days, three and a half years. That is, in our time of persecution, we shall be nourished. We shall be strengthened. We shall be spiritually protected even though we are living in the wilderness. Interesting that Christ, his ministry lasted three and a half years. And during that three and a half years, he was a faithful witness. And we are called 
just like Christ, to be faithful witnesses through our wilderness journey. The Israelites are another example. Daniel's prophecy is another example. But I think primarily what John is pointing to is this. That just as Elijah, for three and a half years, allowed no rain to come, called upon God for no rain to, to, to fall upon the earth, it was a time of testing. So we too will be tested for a period of time. But while we are tested, we will be preserved. God will keep us in spite of all of the suffering and all of the difficulty that we will face. We are, fo- we are to follow the example of Christ, the faithful witness. We are to proclaim the gospel even though we are opposed. We are to live lives of love and charity even when we, we, even when we are hated. We are to be faithful witnesses and we will receive a crown of glory at the very end if we remain faithful, even faithful unto death. Saints, God has not promised us health, wealth, and prosperity in this life. But in the new creation, the prosperity gospel is true. There is health, wealth, and prosperity in the new, in the new creation. And what encouragement do we have in the meantime? We have this. God is with us. God is with us. Our churches may not be filled to capacity. We may have dear ones who are with us who will suffer and die. Persecution or sickness. But in spite of it all, And let me also say, and we can't also depend upon a physical building. These buildings may be taken away from us. There may come a time when we don't have enough money to pay rent. There may come a time when we have rent but no air. Rent but no lights. Does that mean that we've been forsaken? If your faith is in Christ... He has promised we will not be lost. We will not be deceived. And our faith will never be in vain. To God be the glory. Let us pray.